I think our time's up, and we have an, uh, some sort of K-pop convention right out. <laughs> we have a K-pop convention right outside the yeah. studio. So if anyone here is curious as to why it's louder than usual today, <laughs> it's because we're literally looking at a K-pop convention. We record live, or it's not live, but we record in, in an open marketplace in Chinatown. <laughs> Hello and what's up world? I'm your host Kareem Rahma and you're listening to You People, a conversational podcast series sharing real stories from the diverse voices shaping modern America today. We are recording in New York City with the Listening Party inside Canal Street Radio. You People is produced by Hyphen Media, an entertainment company focused on telling colorful stories. I think we're going to have a really engaging, smart, and interesting conversation today. Our guest is Wilbert L. Cooper, an African-American journalist, host, producer, and writer. He's honestly also one of the most stylish people I've ever met in my life. I'm looking at him right now, and I'm literally my jaw is on the floor. At such a young age, Will has already lived an amazing life. He's done everything from drive across America in an RV in the run-up to the 2016 elections, to getting too turnt with Waka Flocka and Gucci Man, and interviewing heroes like Barry Jenkins, the acclaimed director of Moonlight. His writing about race always has a huge impact on me. Some of my favorite headlines of his include, I was forced to fight, now I'm learning to cry. Bill Cosby doesn't deserve our black tears. I am young and black and I don't want to die. I'm so happy to have you here, Will. Thank you so much for coming. How's your day going, It's man? going good, man. Thanks so much for having me come through. You know, I love talking to you and, and rapping about this stuff. It's so. always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Now, I have to say, I can't stop talking about it, but your outfit is dope. Thank you, man. Like, I appreciate it. Well, you know, I, I take notes from you. You, I feel like you mastered like the summer kind of flowy vibe. And when we met up, sort of talking about this idea, I was like, damn, he looks perfect for the summertime. You know what I mean? Like you had you had to look down. So I was like, okay, when I come through, I got to step up my, my summertime game a little bit. Well, my whole look has been pretty much inspired by Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet. Mm, yeah, like, that's a great that, look. That Mercutio yeah. flow yeah. is what I'm after. Yeah. You know, so that's pretty much what I've established as my costume. I call I like to call like <laughs> dressing in New York. I feel like if you want to dress dope in New York, you're not wearing clothes, you're wearing a costume. Right. So that's what I've established. Right? When people see me, they're like, oh, that dude looks like he came out of the Romeo and Juliet film. That's you know? what's up. Um, no, that, that movie is incredible. Mercutio especially is just on another level. It's an incredible, <laughs> incredible performance. I actually don't know the actor's name because obviously Leonardo DiCaprio overshadows everyone mm -hmm. in every film he's ever in. But yeah. I want to see what that guy's up to. He's He's been in some good stuff. He I can't remember his name either, but I know he was in Oz. That TV show way back in the day, and he was—he's also in that show Claws. Awesome Claws. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Claws is like a crazy. My girl loves it. Claws is a crazy, weird, fun show about these like women who own a, a beauty salon, but they're also like drug dealers or like gangsters. Oh, that sounds dope. Yeah, it's really cool. And he plays someone who is just like very, very interesting because I think he has what what would you say? Maybe he's autistic a little bit. So he's kind of different in the way he engages with people, but he also has like a heart of gold and he's he's very smart in some ways. And so it's a really cool character for that guy to play. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Now, I love I love starting every one of these conversations with talking about childhood and growing up. And I know I know you grew up in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. I've actually never been. Right. Uh, so what was it like growing up in, in Cleveland? Yeah, I mean, Cleveland is an incredible city. You know, it's just one of those great cities because it, it has so many different kinds of people there. There are a lot of people of like European immigrant descent, you know, so there are Polish people, there are German people who are 
kind of recent to coming there. Then you also have a lot of black people who came there from the Great Migration. That's how my family came there, down from the South up to the North and settled in Cleveland for, you know, better voting rights, better job opportunities. At a certain point, Cleveland was a really popping city when it came to manufacturing and, and all that kind of stuff. So there's a big thing with that. And my parents, similar to like Irish story or, you know, in Boston over my parents, my family came through that way and then they became police officers. And then now it's me having more of a kind of like white collar job or whatever. But yeah, Cleveland is cool. I grew up on the west side of Cleveland, which is a much very, very white area. You know, in Cleveland, similar to New York and other cities across the country, after the riots in the 60s and 70s, there was a great white flight that sort of left the inner city and, and went elsewhere. And so I grew up in one of those enclaves that was just really like a place for white people to go to escape the city. And, you know, it was a very wealthy suburb and it was a very insular suburb. In school, I was typically like, you know, from first grade through sixth grade, I think I might have been the only black male, definitely only black male in any class that I was in. But I think I might have been the only black male in my entire like grade. So other classes, too, you know, the entire grade that I was in, I was only black male. Wow. So that's an interesting experience. But my family, even though they are police officers, they're very pro-black. And so I had this kind of dichotomy of like going to school and being in this very, very white kind of environment that's really trying to erase or escape blackness and then going home and being in this place that is very pro-black and is about your identity and all those kind of things. So it was a very interesting experience. I wouldn't wish it upon anybody, but it made me who I am. And, you know, it gave me some insight into a lot of things. And is, is the reason that you wouldn't wish it on anyone is because it's isolating? It's definitely isolating and hard. I mean, I think that in a weird way, my girlfriend is mixed race or my fiance is mixed race. And so we talk a lot about this feeling of not feeling quite like you fit in, any, in anywhere. And I'm not mixed race, but I think that my upbringing gave me that feeling as well, because obviously I'm around white people and white culture so much that I'm going to make that my own. But at the end of the day, I'm always going to be different. And people are always reminding me that I'm different. You know, I mean, I went to school and was called the N-word. People threw stuff at me when I got off the school bus. People left dead raccoons in our yard. You know, so that that was like a weird kind of feeling of like, okay, I want to be with you guys. want to be friends. I want to be I want to date. I want to be a part of this social environment. But these people, some people see me as different, you know, and then it's like connect when you go back and try to connect with black people who maybe grew up in a, a more predominantly black community and have these more shared cultural touchstones and things that maybe I'm just not as hip to because I'm not around it all the time. Then I don't feel like I can engage in it either. So I think my upbringing gave me a kind of unique outsider perspective in every situation, you know, and a big part of my life story, my work has been trying to connect more with not just the black American experience, but like the African experience across the diaspora and learning more about my culture and learning more about people who share the same cultural and racial history as I do and really engaging and connecting with that. But I think the outsider perspective and the outsider upbringing that I had, it was hard, but it's also been something that has informed my writing and the way I, I look at the world and the way I report and tell stories. Right. And I was thinking about some similarities between us when, when we were talking earlier. And, you know, my family, it was always a constant. My dad always wanted to do better. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I remember growing up in like a tiny apartment in the hood for maximum a year or two. Right. And then we moved to a nice apartment in the suburbs but it was still an apartment and we were in the suburbs though. Mm -hmm. And then my dad bought a triplex 
in the hood. And then we lived in the middle of the triplex. So there was someone on top of us that my dad rented out to. And it was this crackhead named Bruce <laughs> that used to pay the rent in literal quarters. And then below us was a family. And I think if I can remember correctly, they were Mexican. And there was, I think, like eight or nine of them. And then my family of five was jammed in the middle. But for my dad, it was progress because he owned the place. Right, and right. even if we had to squeeze in the middle and like collect rent from the tenants in quarters, and there was way too many people living downstairs. It was my dad's house. Right. And then after that, we moved to the suburbs, but into the shittiest house on a very, very nice block, cul-de-sac. The school was actually like, I could walk to school. I didn't have to take the bus. Mm-hmm. And then we stayed put. And I think at that point, that was in 1990 that we moved to that house. I feel like my dad felt for him, it was really, it was the actual American dream or the immigrant dream of really having his kids have a shot, mm-hmm. right? And do you think that in that regard, your parents' decision to go to the suburbs and to put you in a place where you felt uncomfortable was also that you could have a shot? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways that you can approach it. And I think that they... When they talk to me about it, they tell me all the different ways they looked at it. They're like, well, we could stay in a predominantly black community that maybe, you know, has some of the problems that you're talking about where crime is on the rise or or drugs on the rise or whatever. And we can send him to a private school. You know, that was one of the things that they were thinking about. But then the problem with sending me to private school is, well, if we're paying X thousand dollars a year, it's going to limit our ability to pay for his college, you know. And so I was like, well, we can move to a different neighborhood and send him to the school and then try to prepare him and give him this like foundation of self while he's there. And my parents really did try. I remember when I was a kid, they had realized that my elementary school did nothing for black history at all. They did nothing. They didn't talk about anything. So my, my wow. mom and my dad came into the school and actually taught black history class for every, not just my class, but every class in my grade. And, you know, like that was the kind of thing that they they were trying to do. They were trying to prepare me or make me, you know, give me what I needed to survive in that situation. There's another time where a bunch of kids were making fun of me because I didn't have like the clothes that everybody else had because at the time, like Tommy Hilfiger was really popping and Jinko was really popping and stuff like that. And I didn't have any of those clothes. My mom used to dress me and she dressed me like a like a little like black Muslim, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, you know, like a little, like literally like, like, like Steve Urkel or like, like Malcolm X type, like Malcolm X. But like, like I would, I would literally be wearing, like I was a little kid, literally wear dress pants to school. Like it's only, everybody else has jeans on and I had dress pants on in school. Like, you know, like I can't play in these pants. They're so hot and uncomfortable, you know? And uh, I didn't have sneakers, like, you know, so my parents realized that these kids were making fun of me. They're like, well, we don't want you to feel like, an outsider. So, and at that time, what's interesting is my parents were really struggling because I definitely think my parents were a victim of rent or not rent discrimination, but like real estate discrimination. You know, I think that even though that they were, had like one of the best jobs you could have a city job where you have really good pay and stuff like that, they weren't given the kind of loan or financing that they should have got to get the house, but they took it anyway, just because they wanted to live there so badly. And so at that time when my dad was going out and buying me these designer clothes to help me fit in, he didn't really have the money because they were working, they both were working full-time and they were working crazy part-time just to make it. And so, you know, it's a really interesting thing about growing up in that experience. And like you say, your parents wanting what's best for you. I think that there's a lot of different ways that they could have tried 
to give me a shot at the American dream. And there are some people who grow up differently and, and they get the same thing and there's pros and cons to it. And this is just the way that they chose. And I appreciate that they cared enough to think about it, even if I might make a different decision for my kid. You know, I'm probably not going to want to send my kid to a school that's as not diverse as what I grew up in. I probably won't do that. But I appreciate that they were trying to do something. They thought about it and they, they made the best move they thought they could. Whether or not I would do the same is a totally different story. I think yeah, everybody deals with this sense of being the other and trying to navigate and, you know, trying to exist within the world. And I think the, the reality is, is that nobody fits into these like stereotypes or ideals. You know, even white people don't fit into what we proclaim to be whiteness. Right. And everyone is trying to like live up or fit into these things. And I think that's where these like strong feelings, these emotions that you have that are disconcerting and are confused or conflicted come from because you can't, like when I write about masculinity, like the idea of being a man, like it's, it's impossible. It's hard for anybody to live up to that, that sort of paradigm or, or archetype all the time. And when you can't live up to it, you feel weird, you know? And for me, I, I had it on two sides because I always felt like, well, I can't be black enough. I can never be white. And so I'm always feeling like out of sorts. But I think that even a black person who grew up in a predominantly black community around a whole bunch of black people, like there might still be scenarios where they're like, well, damn, I can't jump high, you know, or I can't dance. But that's like the stereotype, you know what I'm saying? And maybe you feel a certain way about it. Or maybe you want to run as far away from that stereotype as possible. Either reaction is something that's going to cause you kind of like emotional weirdness. You know what I'm saying? It's going to make you feel uncomfortable because you have these expectations for yourself and they're hard to to fit into or live into right and all of these experiences i don't know if this is true or not but you chose journalism as a major in college and it sounds like was that something that you chose when you got to college or did you already know going into college that you wanted to be a journalist i already knew going into college that i wanted to be a journalist and it, it, it's interesting how it happened when i was in school it's really interesting when i was in school I was reading at a super, super high level when I was when I was really, really young. But I'd had a teacher who was just really, I mean, now I can say she's just like a very like a racist teacher. Whether she knew it or not, she specifically constantly sought me out. She overdisciplined me and she really kind of punished me and pummeled me out of being interested in school. So even though I was reading at a very, very high level, I was going to school and being in her class every day was like hell. And so I ended up being on a regular track for a lot of my stuff, even though when I had subsequent teachers, they were like, well, you should be in honors, you should be in AP. And I remember I had a teacher when I went to, because the track that she put me on meant that I couldn't, I wasn't going to be in honors in middle school. And I think I had a teacher in seventh grade who basically like, I had, we had an assignment and my brother, I was too young. I might've been like 12 or 13. My brother took me to go see uh, Snoop Dogg concert. It's the first concert I ever went to. I'm really, really, I might have been 11. I don't know. You know, I was really, really young, too young to be there. But I, but she's like, go do something and write about it. So I wrote about my, the Snoop Dogg experience and how it was like the coolest thing ever. And I wrote it like super. And the teacher, she was reading it. She was grading papers while we were in class. You know, teachers do that. They like, you know, play a movie or something and they grade papers in class. And she starts, she broke down and started crying 
by how well I wrote it. Wow. And then, you know, she read it out loud. She made me read it out loud. Like, it was like a thing. Like, she was in tears. She was so emotional. And, and she was like, you are a writer. You know, like, you are a storyteller. You need to be in AP English. You need to, you know. And then that, like, then that totally, that teacher totally shifted the thing. Because before, you know, this other teacher had made me feel really, really down to the point where my parents, when I got bad grades from that teacher, my parents didn't even punish me because they were like, we can see how, and my parents are obsessed with grades, but when I was in that grade with that particular teacher who was terrible, they were like, there's nothing you could, this person is just off the charts. Like she's just on another level out to get you. And fast forward to when this teacher put me on the track to being an AP, you know, AP English, AP history. I started, I joined the, the newspaper and I got really into that. When I also started like the Black Awareness Club at my school, the Young Democrats at my school, so it was very political. And I just started writing and being really interested in like telling my story, you know. And so by the time I was a senior in high school, I'd been writing stories in our newspaper that were like literally like one story I wrote for our school newspaper was like Fear of a Black Planet or whatever. And it was wow. like interviewing white students and white people <laughs> and asking them like, yo, like, are you know, are you afraid of black people? How do you perceive black people? Like in my like predominantly white high school, my high school was little, was more black than my elementary school because by then it's like all the schools kind of converged together. So you're going to have like a, a larger number of black people, even though they're not like a larger percentage, you know what I'm saying? But there's more of us. And yeah, so by the time I was, I was ready, man, I was ready to like write and do stuff. And that was my thing. And all I wanted to do is just like write. That's, I mean, that's such a beautiful experience and a story that Something as simple as like, I know we can laugh about it now, mm-hmm. but I'm like, I can imagine that you were so affected by seeing Snoop Dogg. And I can imagine that the essay was like to get a teacher to cry, you know, like there must have been something like just talent. You know, mm-hmm. it's like when somebody identifies a Beethoven or something, they're right. like, that person's got it. <laughs> you know, this teacher and having someone validate you. It's so important to get validated by someone to know that you're good at something. Mm -hmm. And it can be something as simple as that one little essay that you did about some experience that happened so many years ago that literally changed your life and put you on a path to discovering exactly who you are and what you want to be, right? And I think that's really beautiful and, and interesting, which leads me to my next point, which is college. And I, you went to Ohio College. Yeah. I looked it up online. It actually looks incredibly beautiful. It's beautiful. It looks like so green and lush and like an amazing place it sounds like you got real busy in high school with starting those groups and with being active in the student newspaper why did you choose ohio college and and kind of like what was your experience in college yeah i mean the thing about ou it it is one of the top journalism schools in the country it's the script school of journalism so it's very renowned Matt Lauer is not the greatest person, but for a long time, that was who we would say, you know, went there, you know, but Wesley Lowry, who is a peer of mine, he's a little bit younger than me. He's at the Washington Post. Um, he's won some major, major awards. He, he attended Ohio University. So it's a pretty reputable school and it was close to home. I think my parents were, were really afraid of me going far. And at the time I was applying and stuff for OU, OU was a really good journalism school and they offered some really key scholarships for minorities and stuff like that, which were really cool. So that was kind of the reason why I decided to go there. And it was great for me because I was able just to like do my own thing and like get engaged with things that I enjoyed. And so I really, I really, at the time I was really into new journalism when I was at OU. So I was reading like Capote and I was reading, you know, Thomas Wolfe and I was reading 
all these guys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, like all these Joan Didion, like all that kind of stuff. And so I really wanted to do magazine, long form kind of stream of consciousness writing or unconventional writing. And there was a place for me to do that because they had like publications on campus and we actually started our own publication, which was cool. And so it just, it was a playground, you know, it was a great, it was a great place for me to meet friends and, and kind of explore the things that I wanted to do. And I definitely think my experience there kind of put me on a path to want to come to Vice because I was able to like explore the alternative, that alternative style of writing, you know, and see who else was doing it and recognize that there's a place for that within the broader media landscape. Right. And then, so after graduating college, you went to grad school? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a thing maybe you could relate to, too, as like a person of color. Like, you know, I really, for some reason, felt like I needed that graduate degree, you know? And it's interesting because when I was finally hired at Vice years later, it was like, you know, I was overeducated. Like, I had a degree higher than most of the people who were way, way above me, you know? But yeah, in, in college, coming out of college, I was like, well, if I'm going to come to New York to compete with these people, I'm going to need like da 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 And little did I know, like there were people that were working at Vice when I started and people so there who didn't even finish college, you know what I'm saying? We're doing some of the same kinds of stuff that I did. And obviously they had personal connections and ways that they were able to make that happen. But, you know, it, it's a, it was a wake up call that, you know, maybe I, I'm not, I would never change anything about how I did it. But going to NYU for grad school is expensive, man. It's like <laughs> over $50,000. You know what I'm saying? And and just two years of that, you know, you're looking at 100000 And if you get out of school and you take an entry-level journalism job, which is what I had, a lot of those jobs are paying like twenty-eight. I mean, I like I think I made like $28,000 when I first started at Vice full-time, you know, which you could probably make more than that working at like a fast food restaurant if you're like a manager or something. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's so... Yeah, and I I was like in debt from NYU, you know, but I don't regret the graduate school experience because it did connect me to a lot of really cool people. And it was a transitional thing for me. Like it was allowed me to come to New York City and learn about the city and be, be adjusted to the city before I had to worry about paying for rent or before I had to worry about, you know, all the real life things. Because I did have a lot of friends who just moved here who did not stay. Right. They couldn't figure it out and they had to go back home. I love kind of having this moment of you in college and doing the work and learning about all the different writers that you were looking up to at the time and deciding that Vice was the place that you wanted to be and then actually going and actually doing it. So like when you got to Vice, how did you feel? It felt pretty cool. I felt like there was energy there that it was, you know, at the forefront of journalism and the forefront of storytelling. And I, I love the freedom and that's all I wanted. I want. I really, really just wanted to kind of tell stories in unconventional ways and, and, you know, do things that weren't kind of by the book. Because I remember when I started journalism school, the first year that I was in journalism school, I really had second thoughts about the, the career because it was so news oriented and so regimented. And it was so much about the mechanics of the mechanics of reporting. that I was like, well, this isn't fun, you know. And obviously now I look back and I'm thankful for that because you need to know those mechanics and those baseline things to be able to get weird and do whatever you want to do. But to be at Vice and, and have the freedom to do different things was really just liberating for me. And once I was in that environment where there were so many young people doing cool stuff and we had at that time, there were so many people there who had the same kind of sensibilities as me. 
and I felt validated, like you're saying, like, you know, there are people who like the same bands as me, who, who like the same culture, who were inspired by the same kinds of writers, the same kinds of films, and they felt that they were legitimate. It was the first time I was in a place where, you know, think countercultural things that I really admired were hailed as being super, super cool and super special. Like, it wasn't weird to have, like, long conversations with other smart people about and it's not even that obscure, but like a David, David Lynch or, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Lars von Trier or, you know, like weird artists or whatever. Like all those kind of like things that felt kind of obscure or made me a little bit strange in Ohio were normalized at Vice when I first got there by the, the editors and the staff there. And it just was like, yo, this is the place that is right for me. And so you had a, a journalism degree from OA and then you had, sorry, OU. OU <laughs> and then you had... Uh, master's degree from NYU in digital media. Yeah. And then you got to Vice through the intern program. Right. So you were like literally probably you were like an NBC super page <laughs> like like Kenneth on steroids like <laughs> like you were the best probably the best candidate for an intern literally in the history of media. <laughs> right. Like and, and you had just moved to New York. Like, it's like most people move to New York they're like oh I like you know took the summer off and went to Europe. You're like I have everything that you'd ever want me to have and most importantly an opinion a perspective, a vision that I've been working on for eight years mm -hmm. and you came in as an intern and how did you navigate kind of like going from being an intern to being one of the most prolific kind of hosts and one of the most engaging and also having not only the, some of the best written stories, but some of the best video pieces uh, I think at, that ever were made. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I mean, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was kind of crazy because Vice was in a place where it was growing so fast at that time. So I was hired initially to help launch vice.com because before that vice.com was viceland.com. And I think vice, the story is, I don't know if it's true, but the story is that vice.com was owned by some porn company and they couldn't get the URL until about the time when I started. And this was before the HBO show and everything like that. So the company was growing at such a rapid rate that they just needed people. And I, every opportunity that sort of came to me I ran with it and took it to the fullest limit. So I remember, you know, when they were trying to develop noisy and, and have these like noisy hip hop shows, I'd already been writing about rap music for vice.com and, and telling stories. And, you know, they were like, well, and it probably, it, I'm sure it didn't help that I was black. You know what I'm saying? But they're like, yo, like, you want to do this? Yeah, I want to do this. And I'm going to come. And it's interesting. The first noisy doc I did was actually with Snoop Dogg, which was crazy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> How did that feel? That was cool. And That's I, like a real sign from the universe. Yeah, man. it was cool. I told him, I was like, yo, man, you're the first person I ever wrote about. Now you're the first person. And he was like, yo, it's like, you're on your way. He can be, he's, people call him Uncle Snoop, like rappers. And you hear rappers talk about how nurturing Snoop Dogg is. But I will really say he really absolutely is. He, I was only with him for like an hour or like an hour and a half, but he gave me so much positive reinforcement professionally. Like after he did the interview, he's like, he, he literally says like, you're a bad man. And I'm like, this is my first time doing it, but, and I probably wasn't bad, but he told me I was, you know, like he goes out of his way to really just make people feel good and empower people. And he was the best possible person I could interview first. But yeah, every time a new thing happened with Vice, I just tried to get involved. So when they got the HBO show, I tried to get involved there. I, I First, I produced um, an episode that was based on a, partially on an article I'd written for the magazine. And then eventually, I ended up hosting some segments for there. When they had Viceland, I tried to get involved with that. You know, and uh, they aired some of my previous docs on Viceland, but I also got to, you know, host a show that was on Viceland and host some live broadcasts. So I just, every time I saw them doing something new, 
I wanted to get in the middle of that and be a part of it and try to take it as far as I could. Which is so smart to not kind of hold yourself back and feel like I don't deserve this or like there are people that are better suited. And, and I think that comes from having a strong sense of self, you know, which is to say having a strong sense of self is almost impossible, right? Because if, if we tie it back to these overall conversations, it's like you're always questioning who you are and if you're really actually good at doing something mm-hmm. or if you're just pretending that you're good at doing something so that you get the shot of doing it. So being able to overcome that is just like amazing. On a lighter note, I remember a couple of segments with you that were, I guess, more funny than they were serious, which I love that you have this dynamic ability to transform from being like, I guess, like like Gucci Man's homie Mm -hmm. to being like this extremely well-written, you know, ambassador of what it means to be black, right? right? And both of those are totally valid and totally necessary. But tell me more about like the Gucci man, the Waka Flocka, like yeah. those episodes. I mean, that was crazy. I mean, a lot of that was, it was a, <laughs> it was a wild experience because I think that, you know, so much about Vice is about immersing yourself into it and, and being a part of it. And I, at the point when I interviewed, when I was interviewing Gucci and Waka, I'd already interviewed like so many of the top rappers. Like I'd already interviewed Snoop Dogg, I'd already interviewed ASAP Rocky, Danny Brown, you know, a lot of the hottest rappers at the time. And going into Gucci and Waka Flocka, I was like, okay, I'm going to really try to engage and immerse myself in this situation. And I think it was... It's just like college, though. Like, it was the gonzo. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. And, you know, I recognize that there are limitations to how much you can immerse yourself in the situation. I think I look at that situation from so many different points of view. I think if we talk, if we're talking about these racial identity issues that we're talking about before, I think there was a part of me in that situation that wanted to be down with them in a certain way that I could just could never be down with them on. You know what I'm saying? Because it's literally talking about Gucci. Like he's, you know, he killed a dude. Like he's a real G. He's a real MC. He's everything that he talks about when he when he was talking about drugs and things like that, using them and so like that's he's not fake. You know, and there's a certain downness that just in reality, for me coming from strong, I'm not going to be able to hang with him. I'm not going to be able to smoke his weed or drink his drink or nothing. And and I think that recognizing that at that point in my life as a young man, even outside of my career, was a very important thing for me because it let me know who I am and just to be cool with it, you know, and not try to be something that I'm not. And I think with my career overall, when we talk about the dichotomy between some of the humor and light stuff and then some of the the more serious stuff. I mean, I think that's a big part of that for me is about representing the broadness of blackness, you know, and like when I go to, you know, different conferences that are geared towards young black media people, I think that even though all the media personalities themselves have a lot of different dualities and elements in themselves, they don't bring those things to the forefront. And that's one of the things that I, I want to try to do is, is just represent you know, all these different things and also to show growth. I mean, there are certain things that I did earlier in my career, which I'll be, I'll say like, I'm not super proud of, you know, like they weren't as thoughtful in terms of some of the issues that are important to me today. And I've had to grow. I've had to change, you know, and if someone were to bring, somebody were to bring up something I did for Vice in 2010 or 2011, be like, hey, you wrote this. I'd be like, yeah, like that's disgusting to me. Like, I don't stand by that anymore. That's not, it doesn't represent how I look at the world or how I see things. I have changed and and evolved. And that's a part of my journey. And I want to be transparent 
about that, you know? And I think if I were to do the Waka Flocka Gucci thing, even though it was a, a big moment for me in terms of just my notoriety as a host, I totally wouldn't do operate it the same way again. You know what I'm saying? Like that was a, a learning experience for me. And in some ways it was like a, in my real life, if you go outside the video, it was, it was a negative experience. Like I woke up in the hospital. I really was sick, you know? I thought I was gonna get fired. It was embarrassing, you know? And I'm in a way, it's cool that it turned into this other thing that has become a meme. People sample it in songs. People embrace <laughs> it in that way. You know, it's like everywhere. Like I, you, it never goes away. But you know, it, it's just, it's a part of my my personal journey, you know? And I'm not, I'm not in the same place I was there, but I'm definitely always down to have fun because you got to. Yeah, yeah, of course. I don't think you can get through life without waking up in the hospital at least once. <laughs> I, hon I honestly think that's true. And if you're not pushing yourself in all the directions, I like to think like Stretch Armstrong, mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. Like whenever I'm like, that doesn't seem like me. I'm like, well, I don't actually know. Right. So then I try it and then I'm like, yep, definitely not me. Like, <laughs> not my thing. And then I just snap back like Stretch Armstrong. That's and I think true. we have the ability to try things. We're like all we're all like made out of like like a stretchy material. Right. And if something doesn't feel right, you just snap back. Right. And, and I think that that's an important it's important to explore yourself, especially at a young age and to figure out what it is you are, because no one's going to tell you no one's going to define you. You're only going to define yourself. And eventually, by the time you're 90 years old, you are the sum of your experiences, you know, and if you did that one thing that at the moment felt like it was 25 percent of your life, by the time you're 90, it's only going to be 1% or 2% or 3%. It's going right. to be a little like note in your history. So let's move on to something that I assume you're extremely proud of, which was your first really big hit doc, which was the Cleveland Strangler, yeah. which is interesting in subject matter, but also because it's in your hometown. Yeah. That, How did that project come about? That doc was a long time coming. I mean, my parents were really influential in forcing me to want to tell that story. They've been talking about the Cleveland Strangler in that situation for so many years. And I always talked about it from the, the position of the failures of the police because they were police officers. And my dad actually grew up in the area where uh, the Cleveland Strangler murdered his victims and raped and tortured his victims. And so uh, this was a personal thing with my family that was discussed frequently about what's wrong with the police department. And, you know, my work had a major shift in response to Black Lives Matter. I think when I first got to Vice, not that I wasn't cared about political and, and, and social and racial issues, but I think I was really intent on trying to represent through my work the, the diversity of blackness. And so I was covering topics that were, maybe, as a black man, that maybe you wouldn't necessarily see a black dude cover. You know what I'm saying? So besides the rap stuff, I was covering cultural things, weird things, oddball things. You know, but when the Black Lives Matter movement started to rise, my social consciousness in my work really started to take hold. And I looked back at the history of the Cleveland Strangler through a new prism that wasn't just about the murderer and how he murdered these people, but was also about the way that black life is not valued by the police in this country. And that there's a connection between, you know, these police involve murders of unarmed black men and also these murders that take place in black communities that are not investigated, are not explored because nobody cares about black life. And it's like, it's like the other side of extrajudicial judicial killings and stuff like that. And it's almost a more insidious one because, you know, you have in a situation in this country, and especially in Cleveland, you have tons of money being spent towards 
drugs, you know, and, and prosecuting and figuring out drugs. And you have units like the sex crimes units and homicide units that are underfunded and not really getting to the bottom of crimes and things that are going on. And particularly with the Cleveland Strangler, just the one fact that we didn't, you know, discover it ourselves, but we amplified it through the documentary that there had been 4,000 untested rape kits in Cleveland, 4,000 women, you know what I'm saying, who had been, who had experienced or, or it could have been, I mean, men and kids, you know, it's but 4,000 people who reported, who went and, and, and reported and no one's looked into it, you know, and the, the, the kits were not taken care of, not managed well. And this just shows you like that people don't value these people's lives. They don't care about these people's lives. And that was the goal of the documentary, not to be so true crimey and, and focused on the, the nastiness of the murderer and his story and all that kind of stuff. But it was to say, if we had a more financed, but also a police system that actually cared about black life, these murders wouldn't have happened. Right, right. And I, I think what's interesting about the stories that you tell is that they require you to be in them and also to be not only extremely vulnerable, but to experience em empathy in a way that is raw and probably really stressful and probably really trying. You know, one of the things that I reacted to recently when I was like reviewing your work and stuff is you putting on like the uniform at the Civil War reenactment, mm -hmm. right? And I could almost see in your face like how like it was this emotion. I don't know what the emotion was, but like you put yourself into the pain as a journalist, right? Because the stories are so close to you, right? And I think that that provides you with this superpower of being able to tell a story that other people can relate to. I appreciate that, that you recognize that in my work. And it's definitely something I try to do. You know, I try to gravitate towards stories that I'm uniquely qualified to tell, or I could give a perspective or a point of view on a story that no one else could. And I definitely want to always find ways, especially in documentary, to be engaged and involved. And, you know, it's a fine line because there's certain times where you can be engaged, involved in a story, but you're sort of like a fish out of water. And it's kind of just like, it's played for, for laughs or it can be more goofy. But the other times when you can engage in it and it's just like through you and through your point of view, people are able to connect to it in a much more powerful way, you know? And I try to take that on a lot. And through through my work, there definitely have been times where being engaged in those stories in an in intimate way has impacted my mental health or the way I feel, you know? Like with the Cleveland Strangler in particular, there was a moment in time when we recognized that, man, we've been looking at these images of, you know, these mutilated women and this, this killer's home and stuff so much that it's really impacting the way we see things. We, we had a guy who was color correcting it and he was having a hard time too because to color correct those images, you got to really be in there, you know? And, and there's been some times where I've tried to be immersed in it and the story, I haven't been able to really fully tell it. I went and covered the one of the alt-right rallies that happened in D.C. and I was one of the few only black journalist that was there when they were sig hailing. And I'd, I had already interviewed people like Jared Spencer and, I'm sorry, Richard Spencer and Jared Taylor and those guys before. But being in that environment, stuff like that was just like a very, very intense kind of thing to see that hate and ugliness up close that, you know, the story that I want to tell about that, I haven't all the way processed it yet to get it out, you know? 
And so there's drawbacks to it because sometimes it's good to just be sort of, at least for your own personal health, to be like removed and like just the facts. You know what I mean? But it's just, it, it sounds like you ended up actually doing the gonzo style journalism that you were so into and even if you might if it if it took on a different form right it's not fear and loathing in las vegas which sounds like a trip in a fun way it's almost the opposite end of the spectrum where it's you know do you ever feel like it's it's self-help in a way do you ever feel like it's therapeutic or cathartic to do this and to put yourself through it and come out the other side a changed person absolutely there's definitely something special about connecting with people you know, everywhere, like through my job, I'm really thankful for the fact that I've just like built relationships and connections that are so meaningful to me that they've really changed my outlook. And every time I write and report on things, I think I evolve and change a little bit as a person. And that's why I say like something I may have did five years ago and how I did it, even though I like it for the way it is, like it's not the way that I am now, because literally in the process of doing it, I've grown. So I wanted to read this quote that stuck out to me that I always thought was really interesting. I remember reading this article. I remember reacting to it as someone who's not black, but still feeling the feelings that I think you were trying to say. And it goes like this. Of course, when you're black, you don't have the luxury of even feigning colorblindness because America always has a way of reminding you who you are, no matter where you are or what you're doing. I was reminded with a sucker punch from a racist bigot a few blocks away from the vice office. The assailant called me an N-word just before he took a swing at me for no reason other than detesting the color of my skin. And like so many other young people of this generation, I was reminded again when I saw the murder of Trayvon Martin because I instantly saw myself in his death as much as I had once seen myself in the triumph of Barack Obama. Yeah, I mean that that's that's super real to to how I view and how I how I see things and I think that the craziness of, or about racism in America is that those moments like where a guy punches you in the face and calls you an n-word or where you know a guy kills someone and gets away with it those are these kind of like flashpoints that everybody can recognize and point or not everybody because some people will still deny it, but most people can recognize and say man I was messed up you know that's wrong but the insidiousness of American racism is, is it's, it's there and, and they remind you in these flagrant ways. But then there's also these undercurrents that you don't even see, you know, that you don't, you don't immediately recognize or don't have the visibility to be able to connect them to that history that is still with us today. And those are the ones that like are, as a journalist, they're hard to tell. You know, it's a lot easier for me to talk about extrajudicial murders than maybe it is for me to talk about redlining, you know, not and that that. The, the, the problems that we have in this country are so complex and interwoven. It's really, really crazy. But yeah, there's this experience of being reminded of your otherness and, and then also recognizing that you can be punished for it. I mean, I think that every, everybody has unique and particular obstacles, you know, and, but the, the black experience is, is one that is kind of awe-inspiring, one for the the way, the insidious way that racism has managed to mutate and evolve and survive throughout the years. You know, we talked before about the flagrant racism then versus the sort of undercurrent, you know, we can connect the institution of slavery and Jim Crow, we can connect that with the mass incarcerations happening today. But when mass incarceration was getting going, there were some black people who were in support of being tough on crime and stuff like that because there, there wasn't this immediate connection made 
that this was going to be, you know, unequally applied to black people, you know, and, and that this was going to be really become a thing that is going to continue the injustice that exists within our society. And so, yeah, it's like that that is really fascinating about the black experience in America is the way that it's managed to shift and twist and maintain because other cultures and other races in, in America who have been ostracized or othered have managed to assimilate in the, into American society and now they're considered white, you know, not to put Irish people or whatever on the same, or Italian people on the same experience as black people, but these are people who were once looked at one way and then they became part of the status quo. But African-Americans, that hasn't been the same experience. But I also think what's cool about African-Americans is the perseverance and the, the culture that has survived all these things. I mean, I think that you know, when you look at Jim Crow, when you look at slavery, when you look at the Middle Passage, when you look at mass incarceration, when you look at crack in America, you look at these things and then you're like, but we're still here and we're still fighting. And I think that that is like a very, very, very fascinating and empowering thing. And it gives me hope, hope that, you know, that some of the th issues that we're fighting today, that we're getting closer or we're on the verge of a breaking through in a new way, you know, and, and I feel like that is, a, is at least a good thing to take away from the struggles that have, have gone on. No, I absolutely love that. It's inspiring to say the least. And you're inspiring. You've always inspired from day one. We met advice for listeners who uh, don't know our history, which you probably don't. <laughs> As Will and I first met advice in 2012. And immediately I was like, that dude's the real deal. And I've been following him along. Uh, I've been following him, you know, do his thing for a number of years now. And I know that you have been super busy this summer and in the past few months working up new stuff. What's next for Will Cooper? Man, so, you know, I definitely am still writing. I've been doing some writing for the Wall Street Journal and I'm, I'm uh, doing some writing for T Magazine, which is owned by the New York Times, that is more style oriented, which has always been a kind of element of, of what I do in, in culture related writing. I've also been trying to really develop my skills in screenwriting and sort of fictional storytelling uh, because, you know, there are sometimes those are really effective ways to tell stories. And so, yeah, hopefully that will evolve. And then, of course, I want to continue to do travel documentaries, documentaries that allow me to get engaged and immerse in culture. And right now I'm in the process of developing a show which really explores black and more importantly, African culture within New York City. And it's really all about how there is a diaspora of African culture right within the five boroughs and, and really engaging in that and, and what it means. I think it's important to provide visibility for those communities and to also let people outside of a city like New York know that, man, like blackness is broad. You know, there's so many different ways and representations of it. And I'm really excited to hopefully provide a spotlight for that within New York City. That's dope, man. I love that. I think our time's up and we have an, uh, some sort of K-pop convention right out. <laughs> we have a K-pop convention right outside the yeah. studio. So if anyone here is curious as to why it's louder than usual today, <laughs> it's because we're literally looking at a K-pop convention. We record live, or it's not live, but we record in, in an open marketplace in Chinatown. So that's the reason. But anyways, thank you, Will, for coming by. Thanks for having me, Always bro. such a good fucking conversation yeah i love, I I love talking to you and, and you know this has been a long time coming we got to do more more conversations all right man i'll talk to you soon all right let's go. all right keep up with will and follow him on instagram at wilbert l cooper make sure to also check out his website wilbertlcooper.com 
to see some of the amazing content we talked about today. If you like this show, the one you're listening to right now, please follow us on Instagram at youpeople.podcast and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever else you listen to these things. If you like me, your host, follow at Kareem, K-A-R-E-E-M on Instagram. And if you're interested in hearing more colorful stories, follow us at hyphen media. This episode of You People is presented in partnership with Listening Party. Follow the rest of the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. It's been another episode of You People. We'll catch you next time.